Welcome to Black, Brown, and Bilingue, where our mission is to unite the black and brown communities through education, storytelling, and community engagement. The vision of Black, Brown, and Bilingue is to be part of creating a world in which Black and Brown identities are affirmed, bilingualism and biculturalism are nurtured, and equity is the driving force behind all that we do. Thank you for joining us again today. I am Lisette Jacobson, and I am one of your hosts. And I'm Maurice McDavid. I'm your other host. Welcome to another episode of Black, Brown, and Bilingue. The topic for today is intersectionality and leadership. I'm really excited to talk about this topic, Maurice, because I feel like it is very near to our hearts because of how it has allowed us to facilitate social justice conversations in, in, in our work. And so um, I think this is going to be a great episode. Absolutely. Uh, I am really uh, excited about this one. Um, you know, I've got to say I'm, I'm um, excited because I think we've been picking up some, some traction and, and getting some, you know, listeners from various places. And so as we uh, have that happen, I think this is a very important conversation to have because, uh, you know, one of the ways in which I was thinking about this topic for today, Lisette, was surrounding kind of the buzzword right now of white privilege, right? And like you hear people say it and people, some people are like, oh my goodness, you know, blah, 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 and it just irks them. Um, but I think intersectionality is a way to talk about the idea that each of us carry a certain privilege and each of us kind of have one ups and one downs in terms of how we fit in in the world and interact with one another. Yeah, and you know, and I think this is also perfect timing as we look to reopening schools in the middle of a pandemic. And I really think that there is a place for this conversation on intersectionality and leadership because, um, well, I don't want to get ahead of myself, but I feel like some of the ways in which I identify definitely influences my leadership style and and the decisions that I make. The term intersectionality was actually coined by Kimberly Crenshaw almost maybe more than 30 years ago. And initially it was a very obscure legal concept, but you know, as we've started to talk about social justice and dismantling systems of oppression, it has become more of a buzzword. Um, so really, intersectionality is a framework to understand how aspects of a person's social and political identities might combine to create either unique modes of discrimination or, like you said, privilege. It also identifies advantages and disadvantages that are felt by people due to a combination of factors. So to get started, Maurice, if I were to ask you what are the three ways in which you identify or the top three? Cause you know, you could have more than three ways, but 
if I were to ask you, who are you, what would you say? This is a great question. And it's something that I've done before in different social justice activities. Honestly, my very first answer is that I'm apostolic. I'm an apostolic Christian. I think that is one of my identities by choice. That is my, uh, what I hope is my most salient identity. And, and again, it's the one that I have power over. I choose to be a follower of Christ. I choose to identify with apostolic doctrine and lifestyle. However, the one that I, I am always very aware of uh, would be my second one, and that is I'm black. Um, and in particular, I would say I'm a black man. Um, and we know that that has, for hundreds of years in this country, meant something. And I would argue that it still means something today. You know, definitely that idea of being a, a, a black man is really an excellent representation of intersectionality. It represents uh, not just that blackness, but when it mixes with manhood and what that has meant historically or what it means in terms of interactions with everyday people in the store, uh, interactions with the police, interactions with other black men, interactions um, with, with women who are also black or women who are non-black, that black male uh, piece really uh, plays a role. Now, of course, I mean, I could talk about this all day long, but let's, uh, let's, let's get it popping and we'll go back and <laughs> forth here. Um, yeah. What are your top three? I too have done this exercise or have been asked similar questions. And it isn't until very recently that I've, I've decided to really embrace the term Chicana. I think most of the time I would say Latina, but the more that I learn specifically about Mexican-American experiences here in the United States, I really have embraced the term Chicana. And I think it's also that two for one, right? Because it automatically implies that I'm a woman. And that is something else that that really identifies me. And I would say my next one would be millennial. And I think, again, because of our current, current uh, sociopolitical context, it is very important for me to embrace that term millennial because I think that it gets a bad rep. <laughs> and millennials, I, I'm really proud of what we do. And so that would be the other one. And then if I really had to pick, I would say teacher because at the core of everything, I am a teacher. Mm -hmm. Regardless mm -hmm. of the fact that I'm a principal, I still consider myself a teacher. So that would be my way, my three most salient identities. It's interesting because that educator piece is actually wrapped up for me in a little bit of that uh, um, discipleship piece, mm -hmm. that idea that I endeavor to be both a disciple and a maker of disciples. So, so it is truly when I say my calling to be a teacher, uh, obviously I work in a public school setting and so I try to be very careful um, about that, not to be politically correct, but because I also would not want necessarily somebody indoctrinating my children, right? But I try to make sure that I'm representative of that. So that teacher piece is, I think I'd agree with you that it is really uh, important. Lissette, since you brought that up, let me ask you, and this is kind of a, a side note, um, but, but also kind of connects into uh, leadership. Do you miss teaching? Um, 
and 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 the connection there as i heard uh someone say the other day um uh, in fact i believe it was mark van clay um who was speaking about the idea that we have expert teacher or experts in our building and teaching and learning and that they are our teachers they are not Absolutely. us anymore nope they are not us anymore right because mm -hmm. that's not what we're doing on a day-to-day -day basis yeah talk to me a little bit about how you kind of respond to that idea and, and and do you miss teaching at a basic level um i i agree a hundred percent that the teaching and learning experts are the teachers and the students right because they're also learning and teaching each other and i think that so often we do not start there when we go to make decisions which is really unfortunate and so with that in mind i always strive to go back to my team or, or my building to get their input because I understand the cascading effect, whereas we make one decision at the building level that will then become, you know, 10 additional things on the teacher's plate. And so I always strive to make sure that I'm not adding just one more thing. If I do have to add one more thing, it is absolutely necessary for our students. Um, and now in terms of missing the classroom, one of my mentors, very wise woman, she said, you will always miss the classroom. Because that was one of my reasons why I didn't want to jump right into leadership once we graduated. But she said, it's also a good time to go into leadership because you want to exit the classroom with your tank still full and you still want to have a positive attitude about it. And so I think that was the best advice I ever received. But yes, I miss it so much, especially right now where I feel like I'm a little more far removed. And if I could go back, I'd go back as a, like a middle school, eighth grade literature or history teacher, because I feel like that's where the battle is, right? But, you know, at the same time, I want to create an inclusive environment where what I would want to do in the classroom is multiplied right at that exponential level so yeah do you miss it every day yeah me too <laughs> every day however i do not miss the grading I, I i love the idea of assessing don't get me wrong but i do not miss the grading um yeah you know i i think i think there's when when we kind of talk about that part of our identity as as teachers one of the ways in which I really engage with my identity as a teacher is now looking at what professional development can I plan out and be a part of implementing for staff, mm -hmm. right? And, and, and for our adult learners. And I think that, again, you mentioned it a little bit already, my identity makes me a little bit more comfortable with um, certain professional development, right? So, so again, um, as we look at, you know, 2020, some of the buzz right now is anti-racism education, working in equity and social justice. Um, those are areas where I feel like I get to step into the conversation with some, uh, I don't know, street cred, I guess, right? Because I'm- You got some I'm, skin in the game. <laughs> right, exactly. Uh, literally some skin, right? Some black skin. Um, so, <laughs> but I, you know, I get, to, I get to come in with some lived experiences that allow me to uh, engage in that conversation, um, which I think is a very pertinent conversation right now. Yeah, and you know, you and I have talked about how 
the work that we did in our previous district, we're realizing the profound impact. You know, yes, obviously our lived experiences have shaped us and molded us, but I also think that the training that we received in our previous district and the work that we did there really gave us the vocabulary, the knowledge to navigate the conversations that we're navigating now in this new role. And it really struck me like, wow, you know, I'm really proud of the work that we did there. And so shout out to D428 for um, doing some great work with social justice. But by the way, I'm a barb for life, baby. Barb for life, black and orange, boy. Oh my goodness. This is corny and I'm going to try to edit this out. (laughs) (laughs) All right. So let's talk about how this intersectionality plays out and let's, let's keep it to a school system, perhaps, you know, some broader experience, but just like, or maybe the workplace. So do you feel that any of your identities have really giving you kind of like you said, an advantage or a privilege, whereas others do not? And how does context play into that? How does um, location, all of that play into your one ups, one downs? Yeah, so I, I will start with maybe that, that male identity because um, I think in one of our earlier episodes, you know, you talked about the idea that when I started teaching, I'm just 10 years older than the students I was teaching. I was 23, they were 13. And, and there was a question about, you know, what that was like, was it challenging to manage that classroom? And I think in that sense, my male identity was um, a benefit to me, right? Because I could stand at the front of the room at six foot one, and at that point I was a slim 235, you know? Uh, so that's, it's been a little bit. Um, but uh, I could stand at the front of the room and I could engage the room with my voice, right? I mean, we've, we've struggled, you know, Lisette, uh, in balancing our, our volume on this, uh, on this podcast as we, you know, endeavor to put out something that's, that's listenable because um, my voice has that natural. It's just because you think, it's just because you think you're Barry White. I, I'm not going for Barry White. I'm going for Morgan Freeman, actually. It's, was a good day that the penguins marched, right? So that, that, that's what I'm going for. Um, but uh, so I think that was one way in which it definitely played a positive role. That's interesting because for me, even though I was at the primary level to begin, I used, it was a combination of being a Chicana, right? And a woman, I was very nurturing and very warm. And I feel like that took me far. And, and even when I moved up to the middle school level, I think my students had become so accustomed to kind of just, yes, we, we have teachers who build great relationships, but I don't know if they were used to the level of warmth and nurture that, that we created in our classroom. So I feel like that was also my strength and even continues to be my strength in leadership. Definitely. I, I would think that that nurturing piece, uh, it's interesting you bring that up from a, from a leadership perspective. We think about nurturing perhaps when we are dealing with, with students. Can you talk a little bit more about what does that nurturing look like when you're dealing with, with adults uh, in the building? So before I, I jump into that answer, I, I think that early on, and I feel like maybe several 
if not many leaders, especially female leaders, go into leadership roles and attempt to imitate a male leadership style. And I remember hearing even just advice like you don't cry and you don't show any emotion if you're going to be in, in a leadership role or, or make sure that if you do, it's at an appropriate time. And I remember being very unsettled by that idea because I felt like I'm all about authenticity. And if I cannot be myself, I knew that I wouldn't be happy. And I, I noticed other women around me were trying to imitate more of a male leadership style. And early on, I, I made the, the conscious decision to be myself and to be warm and to be affectionate and to be personable because that is where I feel the most comfortable. And so I think when we talk about nurturing adults or creating a warm and inviting environment for people to be in, it's giving people grace, right? It, you can see it in being graceful and letting people make mistakes without making them feel awful about it. Or downright, I, I just, I love spoiling my staff. Every month I try to do something fun. I'm very giving. I love giving gifts or experiences. Like I like, I love to make things fun, but, but with substance. And you know, I try to be as personable as possible. And I think it has fared well for me. I don't view my womanhood as a, what do I say? Like a deficit. I, I, I've embraced it, but I know that there are still so many women that feel like they have to think like a man, act like a man. And that just would be so exhausting to me. It's really intriguing that the things that you described as nurturing if a man were to do them, it would be called good leadership. Mm. If a man were to offer grace, and if a man were to allow people to make mistakes and, and build an environment where people aren't afraid to try things, that would just be called good leadership. And yet it is something that I think women are asked to think about, are, are forced to think about, because they, they have to be able to make the, the, the tough decisions, and can, can they do that? And, and this whole concept of, of whether or not these things can happen, and it's interesting, we're seeing it even play out at a national level now, right, um, with the selection of uh, Kamala Harris um, uh, as vice president. We don't need to get into all of that necessarily, but just that idea of, again, those questions that are asked of a woman that are not asked of, of a man. Um, and so yeah, I, think, I think that's interesting. So, so Lisette, our, our, our podcast obviously is called Black, Brown, and Bilingue. So let's talk a little bit about those identities. Um, and I'll, we can jump back to the Bilingue part, but let's start with that idea of Black and Brown. And in what ways have, have those identities, again, connected to write our intersectionality. So you are not simply just, uh, um, you know, a Mexican-American, but you are a Mexican-American woman, mm -hmm. right? And, and maybe in what ways has that benefited and in what ways maybe has that uh, detracted? This is where context is everything. You know, in my own educational experience, 
I remember being discouraged by some of the language that my teachers used to try to connect with me while I was in honors classes or AP classes. In fact, I had a, a teacher refer to me as the homegirl in the back. Wow. And I was the only homegirl in the back. <laughs> <laughs> and, but the way that he called me out, and I still remember sitting in the back with like my ponytail was slicked down to gel down to the side and the hoop earrings with my lip gloss and just being so incredibly embarrassed. So much so that I walked down to my guidance counselor's office and dropped the class. Wow. And, you know, so. You know, last see. And so it was in those instances that I just remember like, oh, I can't escape this. Um, same thing with my undergrad, just kind of being the only Chicana in the, in the room, but you know, in a, in a interesting turn of events, I became a bilingual teacher and it has been nothing but an asset for me, especially professionally. Um, and, and I just think that's an interesting time. However, I try to also be very mindful of tokenism and I don't want to be seen as the exception right? Because that's something that is very pervasive when, um, you know, people will point to those ex uh, anomalies as examples like, well, oh, racism isn't real because look, we had Barack Obama as president. Um, but, but then that's also is an extra burden that we have to carry, right? That we not only have to represent ourselves, but suddenly we're representing the whole. And when, if we're representing it well, then we're token. It's we're we're the token minority, but if we don't do a good job, it's like, oh man, you messed up. Yep, this is why we can't have all the Mexicans in here because you know what I mean. <laughs> <laughs> so if you do well, you're the token, and if you don't do well, you speak for your entire uh, ethnicity or race. So, so a, a former administrator that I worked for, who I respect very highly. He and I were having a conversation about hiring an African-American teacher. And the question came up of what if he doesn't do well, this African-American male teacher, what if he doesn't do well? And I paused for just a moment and I said, have you ever asked that about a white female teacher? Mm -hmm. The answer is no, because we're always going to need to hire white female teachers because they still make up over 60% right, of the teaching force. Mm-hmm. Well, it's interesting. But, oh, sorry. Go ahead. I was just going to say, but because we were going to hire a black male teacher, if he didn't do well, would it speak beyond himself? And and not just that he didn't do well, but we can't hire black teachers because of this. And and it and it brings up this idea that people have that someone only gets a job because of being black. Mm. In fact, that was the accusation when I uh, got my first administrative job, I was he that. only got the job because he was black. And my answer was, if me being black was a benefit to me getting this job, tremendous. But at the end of the day, I will need to maintain this job. Nobody's gonna keep me on mm -hmm. just because I'm black. Mm -hmm. And so obviously, you know, I kept that job for three years. And, and would have kept it another year had I not had the opportunity to move to another position. You know, so that is definitely something that I think 
you know, plays out. Some, right. And, and, you know, even in hiring practices, right. I feel like sometimes as people of color, you're not exempt from buying into white supremacist thinking. And I think that's a, a an error or a false narrative that people buy into. I get, I keep saying that, but that's like a far, a false um, idea that if you're a person of color, there's no way that you, you can be a white supremacist. No, you could still buy into some of that. For example, some people will have uh, reservations if they are a black principal. Should I hire another black principal? What are people going to think? When people wouldn't even bat an eyelash if there were two leaders who were white. And the fact that we even in ourselves have to question that is so sad. And um, it points to what sociologists really call the invisible norm. And really professional white women are the invisible norm. And when you are trying to navigate the workplace as like for me as a double minority, there are some nuances that again, at the end of the day are more taxing on the brain. Yeah, so I do think about that male privilege that, that I carry into a room, and I've had discussions with you, Lisette, and with others uh, about the idea, particularly in some of my interactions with Black women, who have said something very similar to what I've said, and it has not been received, or it has been received as attitudinal or aggressive, and then when I say it, it is received very differently. Mm. And so I, I've thought about that. On the flip side, I can think back to my days uh, operating as a dean of students. And uh, unfortunately, a majority of the students that I was working with in, in this office that was primarily for discipline were African-American. They were black students. And, and if they were not punished severely enough, according to whoever, the mm. question immediately became, is, is Maurice being soft on the black kids? Oh my goodness. It, and it was interesting because my principal came to me and as we discussed this, he said to me, Maurice, if anything, you're soft on everybody. <laughs> and, and I said, <laughs> I said, there's probably some truth to that because I, I, I care about kids. I want to see them learn. I'm not looking to, I'm not looking for my pound of flesh. You know, that was my, my point of view when it came and still is, when it comes to student discipline, I'm looking for them to learn. That's the root of the word disciple, right? It's, it's, it's talking about teaching and learning. Mm -hmm. um, so I'm not looking for my pound of flesh, um, but, but the question was automatically brought up, is Marie soft on black kids? And I, I unfortunately could pull up my suspension numbers and say, here's, here's what it is. Mm -hmm. We're still suspending more black students. You know, we're still doing this than the other. Um, uh, you know, I, I think of another role, Lissette, we talked about, you know, the, some of the social justice work we did in District 428. Um, I remember stepping in, uh, and this talks a little bit even to our, our millennial identity. I remember stepping in as a 28-year-old and offering professional development on, on race and racism to teachers who had taught me. Mm. And so my youth my identity uh, with the local community, all of those things I think played into me not being well received. However, a year later, when a, a white female colleague would step up and give the same PD, 
it was received by at least another whole group of people that were not willing um, necessarily to receive it from me. And, and again, those were small groups. Those were small groups uh, that were not willing to receive it. I would say overall, um, it was more of a benefit to me, you know, to be able to deliver that type of PD. Mm-hmm. You touched up on uh, a topic that I want to explore a little bit more, which is this idea of being a millennial. I am told that I look very, very young, which I mean, really, I can't help. I got a baby face. <laughs> Can I just say, hold on to that? Listen, I'm 24 years old. The kids was like, Mr. McDavid, ain't you like 40, bro? You do I look said, old. Oh, what, what do you mean? And, and they said, well, you got kids. <laughs> I said, what? You so do you look older than Maurice. I don't know. I've, I've always been told I'm mature for my age. Oh, God. Anyway, so <laughs> my youthful looks, right? No, that is something that definitely was a chip on my shoulder when I stepped into leadership. And it wasn't until I shook it off that I feel like it became a non-issue. But I definitely felt, I'll be honest, inadequate to a certain degree to be able to walk into a room and, like you said, either deliver PD or just simply lead when um, even some people are, are my parents' age or close to my parents' age. And so that was very, very real for me. But I've embraced it. Um, And I think it's because, again, going back to me being my authentic self, I I just, I tried to lead from a place of nurture and, and grace. But do you think that you being a millennial has served you well? Is there, because we, we do, we get a lot of uh, bad press, right? Like, oh, millennials. First of all, a lot of these times, this is generation Z. Let's get it right. Um, <laughs> but I feel like millennials get bad press when I feel like I'm super proud of a lot of the things that we've been doing. Can you speak to that a little bit? Yeah. So, and I think that there's two separate things here. I think number one, the idea of youth is certainly something that, that I still, um, I think something that I'm still trying to shake off. Uh, there is a colleague of mine in my current building who uh, during a one-on-one discussion, she revealed that she actually was born the year before my mother-in-law. And so again, like that was part of the conversation. Then we started talking music and we were able to connect though, because my mother's music was her music. And so we were like, oh yeah, so you like this person and that person. And we were jamming out, you know, oh, Motown, yeah, love Motown. Okay, so, so I think the youth piece is separate the idea of actually being a millennial in particular, I love. Me too. I love millennials. We made social media. That's us. We did that. I I get it. The young people right now, they're all over Snapchat and, and, um, you know, President Trump said no more of the TikTok thing, but, you know, Mm -hmm. they they think that they run that, but but we started social media. uh, And I see both the brilliance and some of the negative part of, mm. of social media. But, but I think being able to step in, and I, I feel very capable of handling anything technology. Like, like without necessarily being a person who is a tech person, I still feel like as a millennial, I can step in 
and we'll figure it out because I know what I'm doing, you know, whereas there is a generation that's still teaching who feels lost mm -hmm. when it comes to technology. So, so I think, you know, in a lot of ways, being a millennial um, has, has benefited. And, and certainly, like I said, the technology piece is one of them. But, but, but I can think of, of many others as well. Um, I think millennials have a sense, uh, a heightened sense of equity and justice. Definitely. And that's something that, that I hold on to. And that's something that, you know, again, I, I mentioned at the beginning, part of my identity as a Christian, I look at older Christians and I look at millennial Christians, and there are a lot of millennial Christians who are really buying into this concept that even our faith promotes equity and justice, right? And so, I, again, I, I, I guess at the end of the day, I'm, I just like who I am, so it's hard for me to, you know, <laughs> say, you know, millennials are this, that, or that. What, what about you, Lisette? I mean, no, I, I, know I, I agree important. with what you said. Yeah, I just, I know this is not about being millennial. This isn't the episode about that, but I think that we have dealt with a lot. I mean, we have had two major crises happen within our lifetime that will definitely impact our lifetime earnings. You know, when we think about the 2008 Great Recession, that severely impacted the lifetime earnings of millennials. Um, and then now with the pandemic, so many of the jobs that millennials hold, like servers at restaurants and, the, and small businesses and a lot of the entrepreneurship that, you know, endeavors that they have started have been impacted by COVID. And so here we are yet again, but I also think that we'll come out on the other side more resilient and with a stronger desire to change and challenge the status quo. Um, and more than I think any other uh, generation. And, and it also gives me hope that with future generations that they will see the things that we will change and, and be inspired. But I do wanna, you talked a little bit about it and I, and I kinda wanna drive this home a little bit more and this is gender. And I want to say two things about that, because this is why intersectionality is so important. I, too, have been in a room where a white female colleague of mine may have said something very similar to what I have said. I'll, I'll give you a, a more specific example. So if a white woman is advocating for ELLs, it has been my experience that that tends to be better received, which is absurd because <laughs> I am a Chicana, right? And I know what it's like to grow up in a, in a bilingual household. But if I try to advocate for ELLs, I'm not, I'm, that's nothing special because of course you're going to advocate for that, right? Of course you're going to vouch for bilingual ed or what have you. But for the white woman in the room doing it, it's almost seen as noble. And that has been incredibly unfortunate because we are silencing a lot of people. And when we, and, and we, we just had this interview with, with a gentleman, when we feel misunderstood, when we feel like our voices are not being heard, you tend to see sides of people that are not very favorable, but it's rightfully so. 
And that's what makes people leave an organization, right? That's, how, that's what leads to turnover. And so um, I know that there's a big feminist movement and, and a lot of, um, I remember this being an issue that was brought up is that, yes, you could be a feminist, but white women and black women and uh, Hispanic women and women from all backgrounds experience discrimination so differently. And that is something that I think as leaders, or if you're a leader of any organization, yes, you may be preaching to one identity, but you need to be cognizant of all of the identities that are represented in the room, especially if you want to turn that organization around, or if you want to make sure that you're maintaining and retaining the key, the key people that you want to retain. That is, that is incredibly important. Uh, you, you, you've said it well. You know, I think about, um, again, that, that, that idea of who gets to advocate for who. I think when you get to a place where the organization has made you feel comfortable enough, um, or, or maybe you're at a place in your career where you're comfortable enough, you know, I, I think I've arrived at a place where I'm going to advocate for whom I will advocate. I'm going to do it fiercely. And, and if you don't want me to be a part of your organization, I'm okay with that. But I'm going to, to do that advocacy. And Lissette, I can say that having worked with you and seen some of your work, I think you're definitely at, at that place where some of these things um, that, that perhaps um, you know, could be deterrents um, you, you're able to push past them. It is the reality, though, that it's something you have to push past, right? It's it's an extra layer, and and I think sometimes um, you know it is not always uh, acknowledged that um, you know educators of color carry uh, an, another level of burden mm -hmm. um, into into this practice. Uh, I, I think about a time where a, a colleague. Um, and actually he, he was a direct supervisor of mine. He walked out of the cafeteria into the main office, came to my office and said, Maurice, there is a group of black children out in the cafeteria being loud. Would you please ask them to quiet down? Mm -mm. In doing so, he walked past the office of two other administrators and was uh, a leader himself and came to me. Um, and I just remember that that's that's a moment that I that I carry with me because on top of the I, fact that I'm trying to work on attendance or whatever I was working on, right? I was doing my job, but then I was asked and layered with an, another level. Mm -hmm. And so I when I think about my my colleagues who are women of color and how often that is happening um, for them, it is something that I try to be aware of as a building leader. There's there's one more piece, Lisette, that I, I want to make sure that we get to. And again, that's the, the third part of our title. Um, and that is uh, that, that bilingual piece. Um, you, you've talked kind of to it uh, throughout the episode um, here and there. But, um, you know, for me, I can say beyond a shadow of a doubt, being bilingual has been something that has in every way has been a benefit for me and, and my career. Um, as a language learner, um, I, I, I have used that to, to connect 
with families, but also to connect with other students, right, who are language learners, um, you know, and say, hey, I'm a language learner too. You know, I'm a, I'm a developing bilingual, <laughs> right, because uh, it's not um, something that I'm, I'm done with yet. Um, well, and it's giving you bit? empathy, right? Now you're also able to empathize. And, and perhaps now when you're seeing some of the academic expectations that are being placed upon bilingual students, I'm sure you have a completely different lens than, you know, compared to someone who may not necessarily, they may understand that it is more taxing for ELs, but they may not understand the extent of it like you would. Right, right. Yeah. Having, having taken classes that were taught completely in Spanish and being asked to read and write and, and, and speak and listen completely in Spanish, a a language that uh, I was not practicing the other hours of my day, um, was, I I mean, I, I, I still sometimes if I'm translating for an, I'm sorry, interpreting for an IEP, I leave and my head is like, whoa, oh man, you, you've done something extra today. Um, uh, but I am so appreciative um, of it. Um, Lissette, I mean, you know, you grew up in a home where Spanish was the primary language spoken, um, but you have been uh, a, a, an English speaker since kindergarten, right? I mean, you told the story of being put in the English class um, so really, you were that simultaneous bilingual. Mm-hmm. Um, um, what was that experience like, you know, um, bringing that into uh, your profession? And in what way does it impact maybe your leadership today? It has, been, first of all, I love it. I, I mean, just on, on, a, on a silly note, you know, I know, tw- like, I can understand twice as many jokes right? Because I know the, the jokes in Spanish and I know them in English means, you know, I can laugh at a ton of memes. Um, that was so millennial of me. Um, <laughs> <laughs> we do love our memes, don't we? Right. Goodness. Yes. And, um, but I didn't really appreciate it. Again, like I said, in previous episodes, I, I tried to kind of put that at the back burner for a very long time. I do remember there being a a word in science class in high school. And this is kind of where the, 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 the tide started to turn for me, I guess you would say, is the word was pulmonary. And the teacher tried to ask students, like, oh, what do you think this means? It, it, was, some, it was pulmonary something. But because I speak Spanish, I was able to figure out that I had to do something with the lungs because lung in Spanish is pulmon. And so that, and I, and I could see that word in that word pulmonary. I could see the word pulmon. And it was at that time then that I just started to love biology and I loved that biology class. Interesting. Interesting. Yeah. Because I, because I was able to recognize all of these words um, in Spanish. And then, you know, obviously as I got older, and we talked about how it was very, still very competitive to get a teaching job when we first started. And so I definitely saw how being bilingual gave me an edge over other applicants. And so, you know, and then the same thing has happened with being a principal. So it's been nothing but a door of opportunities for me. 
who would have thought something that I was somewhat ashamed of and tried to keep away and separate would become so intertwined and help me so, so much. I mean, it's incredible. And I think when it comes to leadership and even being a teacher, I tell that story to my students. And because you start to see that rejection, right? Most kids here in the United States, a lot of the media that they consume is English. English is cool. It's the language of status. And so I'm very deliberate about sharing my experience with them so that I can elevate the status of Spanish. Similarly, one of the very first things I did when I became an assistant principal in a bilingual building, I went to every bilingual classroom at each grade level, and I read them the mission of our bilingual program, and I read it to them in English, and I read it to them in Spanish, and then I explained to them, que somos bilingües. Wow. Ustedes y yo somos bilingües. Y es increíble, es un regalo que, que nadie, uh, nadie más en el edificio tiene, solamente nosotros. Uh, that, 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 that idea, right, that, that we could do that. You and I can communicate in two languages. And not everybody in the building gets the opportunity to do that, but we get to do that. Mm. And so it's really cool. It's really important that you maintain and, and elevate and celebrate English and Spanish, Spanish and English, mm -hmm. because you are not a Spanish speaker. You are not in the Spanish classes and you are not an English speaker. You are not in the English classes. You are bilingual and, and really understanding that as an identity in and of itself, that, that you're not an English speaker learning Spanish or a Spanish speaker learning English. You are bilingual, that, mm -hmm. that that's what you can mark, um, I think is something uh, that I still smile about. And yeah, I'm really I see. Yeah, you're really, yeah, you're really enthusiastic about it. Yeah, I could tell that you're definitely passionate about. And you know what? Your students are going to be so appreciative of that. That will take you very far. Um, so just kind of to switch gears and to kind of wrap things up, we are leaders. What would you say to either educators, you know, in the classroom or at the building or even district level? What would you say to them about, you know, intersectionality? If you had to say, you know, I need you to understand inter intersectionality because, what would that be? I need you to understand intersectionality because, and here's our famous phrase, we've used it on a lot of episodes, no one is a monolith. Mm. And, and, and so typically we have used that to mean that I do not represent all black people, but I, in this case, I want you to understand intersectionality and, and that idea that I'm not a monolith because I do not represent all men. I do not represent all black people. I do not represent all people currently in the middle class who maybe grew up, um, uh, coming from some, an impoverished background, uh, with a single mom who is uh, a, a Christian believer. And, and so I, I don't represent all of anybody, right? But instead, the way that each of those things kind of fold together um, is actually what gives me my individuality. And so through understanding intersectionality, yes, we can make some general uh, um, um, assessments, but it's so important that we still give room and leave space for understanding each person 
and all of what they are. Nice. I, I would add, you know, that we need leadership who truly cares about inclusion. And in order to be in an inclusive place, you have to understand this idea of intersectionality. And if, if you are part of an, if you're leading an organization and they see that you as a leader are passionate about this, that you, that this is at the forefront of everything that you do, others will do that too. Others will jump on board. And it is so important to lead by that example. I think another thing, ultimately, being an advocate for workplace equity requires compassion, uh, curiosity, continual introspection. All of those things are necessary. And it's not about making the people of color or the marginalized groups feel warm and fuzzy. It's beyond that. It is, and I think that's what often happens is any diversity initiative is like, oh, how can we show that we embrace them and that we celebrate them? Again, that's that tip of the iceberg. So it's not about creating an environment where people of color or, or marginalized groups are, are safe. Yes, that's a big part of it, but it's also about dismantling them. So not only are you going to, you know, band with us and, and fight this system that is so much bigger than all of us. Well said, well said. You know, as I was listening to you, I just want to say, and I, I don't know that we say this often enough, uh, Lissette, but I, I sincerely appreciate your leadership. Um, I appreciate um, uh, the work that you are doing um, with your students and, and within our district. And so I think, you know, and uh, in, in, in all of the forms uh, that you're doing that work, I, I appreciate uh, the opportunity also to work with you on, on this podcast. So. Um, oh, thank you, Maurice. Likewise. That's the first yeah. time it's been nice, y'all. I'm just kidding. <laughs> no, it's la verdad. No, it's la verdad. No. Uh, ladies and gentlemen, we thank you again for taking the time to listen. Um, and please continue to listen. Please continue to share. Please continue to interact with us, uh, social media. We're looking forward to just uh, more opportunities to be live on Facebook, different things like that. Um, but remember, you can find us on Twitter and on Facebook, Black, Brown, and Bilingue. I am one of your hosts, Maurice McDavid. And I'm your other host, Lisette Jacobson. Muchas gracias for tuning in. Thank you.